It was the end of the 2006 season, and although their record was 7-9, and nine, there was much to be optimistic about. They had won their last game of the season, and they had won their last game of the season against a team that was a playoff hopeful team. But because they lost, they were no longer going to the playoffs. Not only that, but the last half of the season, they had one of the best running attacks in the league. Surely 2007 was going to be the year they would turn it around. It was the end of the 2007 season, and all hopes of a turnaround were soaked in bitter disappointment. The 49ers were 5-11 and and going backwards. They had a quarterback with a bum shoulder. They had an a offensive coordinator who had no business calling plays for the Cal Bears, much less the San Francisco 49ers. What would be the inspiration for 2008? What would they rely on in 2008? It was week seven of 2008, and the 49ers were two and five. Disappointing again, but this time management would do something. They'd fire their head coach and hire a Hall of Famer, Mike Singletary. First game didn't go well. They played the Arizona Cardinals, and they lost 24 to 29. Not only that, but in the At the end of the game, he actually told one of his players, get off the field. You are better for the team in the locker room than you are on the field with us right now. And then he went to the post-game press conference and said, I can't have anybody on the team who their ego is more important than the team. He went on a famous rant, you can find it on YouTube, where he actually said, I would rather play with 10 players then play with 11 when one of them is not sold out to be part of this team. It's more about them than it is about the team. He said, I cannot play with them. Cannot win with them. Cannot coach with them. Can't do it. And then he said something that would become a 49ers cry for years. He said, I want winners. I want people who want to win. I want winners. I want people who want to win. You remember that? 2008. Man, I tell you, the guy couldn't coach a lick, but he could get you inspired. You know what I mean? And he's like one of those guys who just say, just start talking, you're ready to jump into a pit with rattlesnakes and crocodiles. I don't know what I'm going to do when I get in there, but Mike, I'm going in for you. You know, I want winners. I want people who want to win. Well, I tell you, Pastor Mike Singletary might have taken us to 2013, but we're about to win the Super Bowl. I want winners. I want people who want to win. We've been looking at a series called Symptoms of a Healthy Church. And we've really been investigating in God's Word, what does a healthy church look like? And is Valley Bible a healthy church? Will we be healthy in the year 2013? And several weeks along the way, we've seen things. A a healthy church puts a priority on the Word of God and places it up here and says, we're down here, and this is where the Word is, and we submit to this. In week two, we said, we can't just listen to this thing. we got to do it. we got to be doers of the Word as well. We saw that healthy churches do what the Word says. We saw that healthy churches make up priority out of prayer. Then last week, we saw that healthy churches... Revere Christ as the sovereign. And today we're going to look at the idea that God wants winners. 
He wants people that want to win. I believe after we look at our text today we, and, and we take this apart and we read it, that when we come to our conclusion today, we'll actually be saying, it's like God saying to us, I want winners. I want people that want to win. And we'll be looking at two things as it relates to winners. What strategies do winners employ and, and what motivates them and drives them? What kind of strategies do winners implement and what motivates them to succeed? Do I have a winning strategy? And what should be my motivation anyway? And for that, we're going to go to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. If you're new and you're visiting us today, there's a Bible right there in the pew before you. We'd encourage you to open it up. Look to the first page. It'll give you an index and tell you what page uh, 1 Corinthians is on. We do that because we want to let you know that this is not just something we're making up. Like, we're getting it from somewhere, and we want you to test us on it. I mean, see if what I'm saying is what he's saying in the Word. So open it up to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19. The first thing we're going to look at is the winning strategy. The winning strategy. What is the winning strategy? 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19. Follow as I read. Though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone, to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew, to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those having the law, I became like one, to those not having the law, I became like one not having the law. Though I am not free from God's law and am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do this all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share in its blessings. The winning strategy. The winning strategy. Really starts off kind of interesting. Though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone. Really interesting. In one sense, I'm free, and then in one sense, I'm a slave. It's almost like a paradox. How can both be true? How can I be free and yet be a slave at the same time? How does that work? Uh, we didn't go into it, but earlier in the passage, and earlier in 19, he says, by the way, I, I'm an apostle. I have some authority here. In fact, I could charge you guys. It would be right for me to charge you for bringing the gospel to you. If I, if I preach the gospel, I can earn my living by, getting, by, by preaching the gospel. I could require you guys to pay me, but I'm not going to do that. In a sense, I'm going to enslave myself to you. I'm going to have another job on the side so that I can preach the gospel to you free of charge. Because I don't want you to ever think to yourself that I'm doing something for another motivation. And so I'm going to enslave myself to you so I can bring the gospel to you free of charge. So you will never be able to say of me that I did it for any other reason but to give you the gospel. And so he says, even though I'm free, I am enslaving myself to people groups in, hoping, in hopes that I might take part in their salvation. And why would he do this? He wants to see people get saved. He wants to see the gospel of Jesus Christ change people. And it really marks the beginning of seven subjunctives. 
Uh, a subjunctive is the, the mood of probability. I like to call it the mood of optimism. Seven times in this text, he's going to say, that I might, that I might save, that I might save the Jew, that I might save those in the law, that I might save those outside the law, that I might save the weak. I do all things, all men. I want to save some. The mood of optimism. He gives us four examples of four different type of people group types that he's targeting. First, he starts off with the Jews. He says, to the Jews, I became like a Jew in order that I might win the Jews. There goes a the subjunctive. In order that I might win the Jews. Optimistically, I am targeting them because I want to win them. It's a really odd saying, though. To the Jews, I became like a Jew. Paul, you are Jew. You're Jewish. What do you mean? To the Jews, I became like a Jew. You are Jewish. To the Jews, I became myself. What is he saying? He's like the best of Jews. He grew up in schools. He, he's a Pharisee. He had the best training. You are Jewish. What are you saying? You know what's interesting? When you come to Christ, you no longer identify yourself purely on your ethnicity. Now all of a sudden I have an identity that is higher. I'm identified with Christ. So here's my true identity. And by the way, to the Jews, I became like a Jew. But what I am is Christ, a Christian. That's who I am. We see no color. We see no color. When you come into this building, everybody's the same color, red, the blood of Christ. You understand that? And so he's making a distinction. To the Jews, I became like a Jew. You know, I just had our first, our first um, life group at my house on Friday night, and I was just thinking this morning, man, how, many, how diverse were we? I don't even know. You know why? Because I don't care. Because I don't see any color. We don't see color. When you step into this room, only one color red, the blood of Jesus Christ. We're all identified with Christ first and then our ethnicity. You say, well, I'm proud to be what I ethnically am. Well, I am too. And I'm one good-looking Latino. <laughs> when it comes in these circles and in the church, my identity is more wrapped up in Christ than it is in burritos. <laughs> so what is he saying? To the Jews, I became like a Jew. You know what he's saying? I submitted myself to their cultural norms. I bound, myself, I bound myself to the things that they were bound to in order that, that they could see me like them and then I could reach them. It wouldn't be unlike us moving to a, a, another country because we wanted to reach a people. Let's say we moved to Iraq and we wanted to reach Iraqis. Well, you better start dressing like an Iraqi. You better learn their language. You better start eating like an Iraqi. You better figure out that culture and not impose your culture on them. That's all he's saying. I have freedoms. I will give up my freedoms in a second, if it means I can reach somebody. To the Jews, I became like a Jew. He takes it a step further. He says, to those under the law, I became like one under the law. Although I myself am not under the law, in order that I might win those under the law. Wow, so now, now he goes religious on us. There are people under the law that have to, they believe that they are bound by God to follow some rules. Some rules that I believe, since I'm not under the law, that Christ on the cross has fulfilled. And so those rules all are, are abolished. But guess what? When I'm around them, I'll participate in those rules. I will. I'll do their ceremonial washing. I'll, I'll follow their dietary rules. I'll, I'll observe the Sabbath while I'm with. Whatever it takes to reach them, I will participate in to reach them. So I am free. I, I have so many freedoms. I don't have to live the way they do, but I do anyway because I want to reach them. Why? That I might win some. Then he says, to those that are without law, I became like 
one without law. Although I am not without God's law and subject to Christ, but I'm subject to Christ in order that I might win those without law. Now he brings in the Gentiles. Okay, we have the Jewish, the religious culture, and now he's bringing in the Gentiles. To the Gentiles, those who are without law, I mean, he didn't point them out directly by saying Gentiles. Maybe he didn't want to offend them or something, but it's true. The Jews had the law, and the Gentiles had no law. They didn't, they didn't, God did not give them the law. So to those without law, the Gentiles, I became like them. So if I'm around the Gentiles, I become like the Gentiles. What does that mean? When I'm around the Jews, I, I don't eat meat because I'm trying to reach them. And when I'm around the Gentiles, they eat meat, so I eat meat because I'm trying to reach them. But he makes a point of saying, wait a second, I, I, although I, I, I am not, I'm not lawless myself, I may, not, I may be free from some aspects of the Mosaic law, but I'm still bound to God's law. You know what he's saying? If ever there is an amoral activity, meaning not moral and not immoral, amoral, it's neither moral or immoral, has nothing to do with morality, I flex on issues of, of amorality to reach people. I won't do anything against the cause of Christ. I won't do anything against my Father. I will do nothing against the Scriptures. But if it's amoral, I flex on those issues so I can reach them. So you come to church today and you look around and you say, hey, there's no stained glass windows. In fact, there's not any windows in here. We don't have, we, we didn't build this. I wasn't around here when they, when they came up with the plans, but we didn't build a building with a big, like a big A-frame structure with a steeple with a big cross on the top. We didn't do that. Obviously, when you drive around, you see we didn't do that. We have screens and multimedia. There's not a big cross in the center right there, all lit up. There's no altar on the stage. We don't have puke green carpet in here. We turn down the lights at times for ambiance during certain songs. Have you ever notice that? We do all these things because we flex on items that are amoral. We contextualize church within our culture. Why? So that we could reach people. Pews, chairs, who cares? Can't find a verse on it. it when, when purple becomes puke green, we'll change it. The whole idea is to suit the culture and flex in areas for the, for the cause and the purpose of reaching people for Jesus Christ. It doesn't stop there. He says, to the weak, I became weak in order to win the weak. This is a kind of a hard one. Who, who is he describing there? You might have met some people that, uh, two possibilities. One is uh, some people who are just kind of more conservatively bent in life. They like being conservative for conservative's sake. He said, well, I became conservative. <laughs> uh, to the Republicans, I became a Republican. No, I'm just kidding. The, the idea is I will, if they're conservatively bent, I become like them so I can reach them. Another, another possibility is that, that he went to a weaker class, meaning I'm of the upper class. I'm educated. I'm of the higher class, the first class, and, and I'm willing to go to the common class, the working class. I'm willing to go to them, and I'll become like them, and I'll look like them, and I'll talk like them so I can reach them for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Either one. Paul is saying, I adapt myself so that I can win people to Christ. And then he makes a statement. To all men, I have become all things in order that by all means I might save some. To all men, I have become all things, in order that by all means I might save some. Do you know anybody like that? Who literally wakes up and says to themselves, 
every category of people, I have to have a strategy to reach. Rich people, they're kind of uppity. I got to approach them like this. And then there's these uh, Mormons. I got to approach them like this. And Jehovah's Witness, like Catholics, I'm going to approach this way. Every type of person, I'm going to approach them in a specific way in order to reach them. You ever met anybody like that? I can't even imagine. What is the winning strategy? It is to target everybody in a unique approach in order to win them. Now, wait a second, Paul. This sounds a little bit, it's kind of like, sounds two-faced, Paul. This group over here, you present one face. In this group over here, you present this face. You're not even being consistent. You're being hypocritical, Paul. And he's saying, no, no, no. I'm actually being very consistent. I'm trying to reach them all. I want to reach them all. Every people group, I want to reach. I got a strategy for all of them. And when that strategy fails, I change it and go another strategy so I can reach them. I want to win. Well, this does bring up a theological issue, though. Does he actually say, I have become all things to all men, so that by all possible means, I might save some? Now, come on, Big Dave. We're a church that believes the only person who saves is God. We're soteriologically reformed around here. Uh, Paul is obviously off on this point. He doesn't save anybody. Only God saves people. Come on, Paul. Didn't you step out of the bounds? I'll just tell you this. We are, we are uh, reformed in salvation. But I'll tell you who we get it from. The author, Paul. <laughs> All right? Before there was Matt Chandler, there was Paul. Before there was Charles Spurgeon, there was Paul. Before there was Jonathan Edward, there was Paul. We all quote Paul when we say, you believe and you have faith to believe and God breathed that faith into you so you could believe in the first place. That's Ephesians chapter 2. Who wrote that? Paul. All right, so Paul knows, he understands that God is sovereign, and he understands that God is the one who wills people to salvation. He's not trying to say that he can save them. He knows God's saving them. So what is he saying? Let's look at verse 23. He says, I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I might share in its blessings. Another way to write that would be to say that I might participate in it, that I might become a participant in it. Paul is so wrapped up enslaving himself to every people group that he believes he's participating in it. I just want to participate in it. I just want to be there when they open their eyes. I just want to be there and help them and pray, help them uh, prayer of salvation. I want to see their lives change. I want to partake of this. I want to share in this. I want to be a part of it. I want to win. I'm not passive in this thing. No, I am active in this thing. Seven times, he says, that I might win. Seven times that I might win. To the Jew, I became like a Jew, that I might win. Those without the law, I became like one without the law, that I might win. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win. Everybody, I want to win them all. What is God saying? You know what he's saying? He's saying, I want winners. I want people that want to win. And Paul says, I have a strategy for everyone that I might win some, that I could participate in that. And now we're going to look at what kept them motivated. We've looked at the winning strategy, and now we're going to look at the winning motivation. What motivates me to be winsome? Let's look at verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. 
I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. The winning motivation. The winning motivation. He uses kind of this illustration almost for us would be like an Olympic-type illustration. All of us know what the Olympics are. The people in Corinth would know the type of Olympics for their time. In fact, many people believe he was writing around the time they were going on. And so very, very common is the idea of runners and a race and, and stadiums and people running in stadiums. And at the end of a race, they would win a prize. They understand that. They've seen that. Uh, they've idolized the people who win the prize. Uh, they would idolize them to the point where it, w- it wouldn't be like, um, you know, in 1955 this happened. They'd actually say things like this. Well, the year that Apollo won the race, this is what happened. They'd actually uh, uh, redefine years based on who won the race. And so they were very, very into this illustration. They knew exactly what he was saying. And he says, hey, don't you know that a whole bunch of people go on the race, but only one gets the prize. Run in such a way to get the prize. You run in such a way to get a prize. It's a, it's a command. I command you to run in such a way to get the prize. But you know what's interesting about that? It's not a singular. It's plural. He's saying you plural. Church, collectively, run in such a way to win the prize. I want you to be outside-minded. I want you to reach other people. Collectively, church, let's get together and win people over. That is the goal. We want to win a prize. It, well, oh, we have a pastor of reach out. His name is Sean. He's the one who does evangelism. No, that would be you singular. This is you plural. All of us, church, get together. Hit the prize. We're in a race together, racing to win a prize. We talk about symptoms of a healthy church. Run to win. We want, I want winners. I want people who want to win. Everyone who competes exercises self-control in all things. You, you, you ever seen people who are competing in something and, and, and they've literally like subtracted everything out of their life for one goal? I had a friend, uh, actually growing up in this church, he was a bodybuilder, and he would, uh, I was just happened to be at his house like on Sunday night, and he was making all of his meals for the week, and he, he didn't use butter because that was too many calories, and he'd spray Pam on the, on the, on the, on the pan, and, and, and he'd break eggs, and he wouldn't eat the yolk. He would just make egg white omelets, all right? And, and after he was cooking, he'd throw in peas and carrots into the egg whites, and he'd weigh it, put it in a Tupperware, and that was Monday, and he'd make five days of that. That's what he ate for lunch. Egg whites and peas and carrots. He's a bodybuilder. He's trying to get chiseled for his next competition. You know, you know what I mean? And that's what he's saying. Uh, the, the, the prize, the goal, the finish line is such, that is so encompassing. It's changed my whole life. That's what I'm looking to. I've brought every appetite under control that I might win. I exert myself to the limit that I might win. I train like a champion that I might win. My motivation is completing the goal, getting the reward. And then he talks about the reward. You guys know the reward. You've seen it before. They, they run around, and then whoever gets to the finish line first, you know what they give them? Oh, we get a gold medal in our Olympics. Back then, they'd get a reef. You're telling me you did all that work and spent all that time so they could cut a bush that's dead and put it on your head. And he says, 
they run this race for a reef. It literally is the word for wither. It's already withering. It's a perishable prize. It's a withering prize. And you know that your prize is eternal. How much more should you run and focus? And then he gives two negative illustrations of what not to do. Here's an illustration of the aimless runner, I'll call it, and the targetless boxer. The aimless runner and the targetless boxer. The aimless runner is a guy when they shoot the gun in the first century. Didn't have guns, but whatever. Everybody goes in a direction. Everybody's headed towards the finish line, and the aimless runner is like, oh, those are cool over there. I'll go over here. <laughs> that was cool. I'll go over here now. And he's like, so obviously you're not going to win the race if you're not headed towards the finish line. If you don't keep the goal in mind, you're not going to win. Then he goes to the, to the uh, targetless boxer. This is the guy who goes in the, room, in the ring and beats the air more than he beats his opponent. So he's swinging. He's got a lot of swinging. And if he was fighting against the air, he'd be winning. But unless you start hitting your opponent, you'll lose. Now, I was accosted by a boxer in the first service. Sometimes you do swing and hit air on purpose just to set them up for your next hit. Okay, I understand that. But at some point, you're going to have to knock the guy out. If all you're doing is hitting air, you're not going to win. you got to keep the purpose in mind. you got to keep the goal in mind. you got to keep fixated on the finish line. you got to keep the crown in mind. you got to keep on going. This is where I'm headed. I'm in, I'm in this to win this. And some of us are aimless and targetless in our resolve to reach people. Some of us are aimless and targetless in our resolve to reach people. You know, I have a fear for a church like us. We do something so well. We preach the word. I mean, we meticulously preach the word. Every word has, has a definition. Every word matters. We parse this thing. We take it apart. We go minute on it. We extrapolate every kind of thing we can get out of these words. That's good. We're so good at that. We're so good at parsing it and, and, and getting truth from it. People leave every week thinking to themselves, man, God is so much bigger. When I go to this church, God, they, they, the way they paint God in Christ, he's so much bigger. And it's wonderful. And it's wonderful that you're getting equipped. But what are you getting equipped for? So you can come back next week and, and God's big again. So you can come back next week and, and God's even bigger this time. And you come back next week and look how big God is now and not tell anybody about it. Could it be that he's equipping us because he's, he, he's getting us equipped? It's almost like a, 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 a getting a guy who's going into war and giving him ammunition. What is the ammunition for? To go to war. He's getting us equipped to go out and tell people. And we can be so caught up in knowledge and learning and puffing our head. And you know what the Bible says about knowledge? It can lead to what? It can lead to puffing up. We get all proud. We know the right arguments. We know, we know how to fight the debate. But are we telling anybody? Does anybody know? Does anybody tell? Are we so content to gorge ourselves on the feast in the word when there's a starving world out there who needs to hear it? Paul goes on to say, I beat my body and enslave it, lest after I preach, I disqualify myself. The word there for beat is literally the idea of punching somebody under the eye, giving them a black eye. You know what he's saying? I beat myself black and blue. I discipline myself in every area of my life. 
I keep my eyes on the prize. I keep my eyes on the goal. In character issues, I discipline myself so that I don't disqualify myself in the process. He's not talking about losing your salvation. People who get disqualified from a race don't die. They just don't get the prize. I debated on whether I would use this illustration, but I'm going to say it anyway. I, uh, believe it or not, when I was in high school, I was on a swim team. You know, I never won a race in uh, the swim team. And I was pretty fast for a big guy. It's just I was never racing against other big guys. So it wasn't fair. I always figured to myself, if you want to make it fair, give them like a 30, 40-pound backpack, and then let's see what happens. Well, they would do these individual races, and then they would do these, like, I don't even know what it stands for, but they, they were called IM races. And IM races were basically like a, a relay race. So one of us would run freestyle, one of us would swim breaststroke, one of us would swim uh, butterfly, and uh, uh, I would always swim backstroke or something like that. So whenever they put me on one of these relay teams, it was almost like the death note to the team. We never won, you know what I'm saying? I never could figure out why we never won. We would do so well, and then I would get in the water. <laughs> Finally, there was this one time where we lost, of course, and we always lost. But there was this one time where we lost, and it wasn't my fault. And I was like, great, listen, there's a time where we lost, and it felt so good. We lost, but... What had happened was the first guy went, and on his way, I was the third guy, and on his way back, he, he, he was to touch the wall, and as soon as he touches the wall, the, the, other, the second guy goes in, okay? But before the guy could touch the wall, the second guy jumped in, and, and the official saw it. And he basically said to me, hey, you can, you can swim the race, but you're disqualified, you know? Your, your team, he, he left before the guy touched the wall, and I, and I thought to myself, wow, why pronounce, you know? Our loss so early, <laughs> we're going to lose anyway. <laughs> and saying, like, well, why did you leave the wall early? Maybe he was trying to make up for some time. And so anyway, uh, the guy came back, and we, uh, I swam and thing, whatever, but we had lost, and it wasn't my fault. I was like, yes. And that's what he's saying. Paul is saying there's rule to the race. Character isn't optional. We've got to practice what we preach or end up disqualified like a counterfeited coin. It's interesting, this idea of the race. It's not the first time Paul's used it. It really almost has like a twofold meaning. There's one time in the book of Galatians where the Spirit of God had, had approached him and told him, you've got to go talk to these leaders over here, these, these other apostles and leaders who are preaching the gospel. You need to go talk to them. And so he goes, and he talks to them. And, and he says uh, he went to them in private for fear of, uh, that he was running or had run the race in vain. So they're clarifying the gospel together. Here's Paul, who had received his gospel from Jesus Christ, and here's these other leaders, and they're coming together in private. Are we preaching the same gospel? And it's not like Paul saying, I wonder if my gospel's correct. I, I hope I didn't get it wrong. No, Jesus gave him his gospel. He knew his gospel was right. He's worried about them coming in on his people. And after he had preached the gospel to them, them messing the whole thing up. So he wanted to confirm that we had the same gospel. And so in that sense, running the race is really preaching the gospel and the effects of the gospel. Happens again in, in Philippians chapter 2. It says, I want you to live a life that's faultless so that in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. Again, I want to know that when I preach the gospel to you that it meant something. I'm running this race to preach the gospel, and I hope if you will stay there and stay there to the very end, I will know. 
but it wasn't in vain. And so you have this one aspect of running the race is preaching the gospel. Then you have this other aspect of Christian living. And really the idea of Christian living until completion. You might have heard 2 Timothy chapter 4. It says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, not only to me, but also all who have longed for his appearing. There, running the race is more about making it to the end. We see the same thing in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And again, you see Christian living to the end. And so there's two facets of the race. So what is the race? The race, I believe, is twofolded. It's disciplining yourself to reach people and disciplining yourself to live the gospel as well. You've got to preach the gospel and live the gospel too. It's a both and. What was Paul's motivation? What, what motivated him? He focused on the prize. He focused on the finish line. He focused on the goal, on the crown. Winning people with your words and your life. And the reward is coming. What was his motivation? You know what it was? Winning. He wanted to win. I want winners. I want people that want to win. I want people that are, have a winning strategy and have a winning motivation. I want winners. I want people that want to win. I told you guys uh, several months ago that I bought a TV uh, right before football season, and God rewarded me with a 49ers going to the Super Bowl. And, <laughs> I, and I went to Fry's, and I, and I befriended this guy named Khalid. And um, I went in, bought a 55-inch TV, then I went in again with the youth pastors, and we bought two 65-inch TVs for the Family Life Center. And then I went in with Pastor Ron Johnson. You guys remember him? He's doing Refuge Church in, in Lafayette. It's kind of a sister church of ours. He was looking for a 70-inch TV. We went back to Khalid. So I'm thinking, one, two, three, four. You know what that adds up to? That adds up to five minutes of telling you about Jesus Christ, and you're going to listen. I just bought four TVs. And so I said, Khalid, I'm a pastor. He's a pastor. We're buying these TVs for Jesus. It's para Jesus. And I said, Khalid, he's not even Hispanic. I go, Khalid, I go, Khalid, it, 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 I, you need Jesus, Khalid? And he goes, oh, no, no, David, David, I'm Iraqi. Uh, uh, we believe that Jesus was a prophet. I go, no, can't be, Khalid. Doesn't work that way. He said he was God. There's no prophet that's a liar, and there's no prophet that's crazy. He's either God or he's not. Khalid, we believe he was God. He came in on earth. He walked a, a real life. He died on the cross for sinners like you and I. He died for our sin and then rose three days later to give us new life. Khalid, you need Jesus. Audrey came home from school a couple months ago, and she was um, disturbed. She kept on saying that her teacher would say things that she just wasn't understanding. She grew up in the church. She's been around here. Every time we talk about God, people smile and people feel good, and we pray to God and we thank God for, for salvation and and this teacher would, would, would only use his name when he was frustrated and mad. And, and I don't mean he would say, gosh darn it. So here's a second grade kid who just doesn't understand. So I told my wife, we're going to go in there and we're going to tell this teacher about Jesus. And Audrey's going to be right there so she can learn. 
So we sat down, these small little chairs, and <laughs> of course he goes through, she's reading well, she's adding and subtracting, and I get, you know, second grade, you know. And I said, well, I have to tell you something. Audrey's come home kind of bewildered and confused. And I have to tell you something. We're Christians, and, and um, I don't expect you to live your life differently. We don't expect people, we're training Audrey, we don't expect people who aren't Christians to live like Christians. They're not Christians, so we don't expect that. We don't expect you to change anything. But we thought it would be good for you to understand at least, at least a little bit of why she'd be confused. You see, we believe Jesus Christ came to earth being man but being God and walked a perfect life and and he would die on the cross for sinners like you and me and and, and our sins would be placed on him and and he would be the reason after he was resurrected he'd be the reason why we could have fellowship with God and go to heaven and so when you believe that you have to understand something that name becomes beautiful to you and not something that you use when you're frustrated and so I just wanted to let you know that and I'm trying to train Audrey as well that not to expect people who don't know that to live any differently we left the classroom, and 10 minutes later was Donovan's teacher's uh, meeting. I looked at my wife, and I said, that went so well, we're going to do it again. <laughs> <laughs> so we're in the first grade classroom now. The chairs are smaller. <laughs> you know, we're, we're and the teacher's like, oh, you know, Donovan's doing really good. The color's within the lines. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> he knows his letter is great. You know what I mean? I'm, there, I'm thinking to myself, how am I going to turn this to Jesus? And so uh, I look, and there's like E's and S's, and, and, and I said, what are these E's and S's? He goes, oh, it's character. I go, great, tell me about his character. I want to know about his character. He goes, wait, tell me. I said, I, get, I go, teach, you got to understand something. You see, we're Christian, and so we believe that Jesus Christ came to earth and died on the cross for our sins, and that he was risen again on the third day, and, and that by virtue of his resurrection, he gives us new life. And when we get new life, we should look different. So there's a sense where Donovan should look different than any other kid in class if he really knows Jesus. So I want to know about his character. And so we left thinking, how can we get the principal? <laughs> That's two stories. I really should have like 15. Two stories in the last six months. I, I should really have like 40 or 50. I'm not impressed. How about you? Do you have any stories? How long would it take you to quote me a story, the last story you had? Do you have any recent stories? Any stories that say that you've strategized to, to, to be winsome, to win somebody to the cause of Christ. Anything. We're in this series called The Symptoms of a Healthy Church. And one of the symptoms of a healthy church is that we're actively reaching out to the lost and telling them about Jesus. What does God expect of his church with regards to evangelism? He expects us to employ a winsome strategy with hopes of reaching the lost. What does God expect of his church with regards to evangelism? He expects us to employ a winsome strategy with hopes of reaching the lost. You know what he's saying? I want winners. I want people who want to win. How about you? Are you participating in the race? Do you want to win? Who would God save this year, 2013, because of your intentional influence? Well, what can you do? I'll tell you some things you can do. Seek out Pastor Sean Giese. He's our reach-out pastor. 
We do welcome baskets to welcome people to the community. We do door hangers to let them know that what, what's going on in the church. We do visitation. People who visited us, we visit them and say, did you enjoy yourself? Did you have a good time? Many times they preach the gospel right there in their homes. And everybody, oh my gosh, Valley Bible, you noticed I was there? Sure, come on in. We do mercy gifts. Uh, ask Pastor Sean. We go and, and help people in the time of need in, in hopes that we can reach them with the gospel. We do Sean's birthday barbecue coming up in May where we make hamburgers and hot dogs for any kid that will show up. And you know what we do? We give them the gospel. You know what else you could do? You could join the team of greeters. Uh, see Ernie Sanchez. We need more greeters. But only join if you can smile. Be a smile. Look out for people. You, when they look new, don't go, you look new. Go, hey, what's your name? How long have you been going to Valley? You might be surprised how many people say two months, three months, a year. We just think everybody's been going here forever. That's not true. And young people, young adults, get on the greeters team. We're not represented. Stop thinking to yourself that somebody else is doing it. Do it yourself. Handshake, smile. When we, when we do our little greeting at the beginning, hug somebody you don't know. Actually go to people. Smile at them. When you find out they've only been here for three months, memorize their name and seek them out next week and go, hey, George, how you doing? They'll think to themselves, oh, my gosh, look how big this church is. And somebody remembered my name. Be welcoming inside. Think to yourself, I'm going to be outside-minded on Sunday. I'm looking for people that I don't know, that I'm not familiar with, and trying to remember their name, trying to remember who they are, where they come from. I am strategizing for the cause of Jesus Christ. You can do it right here. You can invite your friends and your coworkers to church with you. And you could say, come to church with me. I think you'd love my church. It's so, man, they're so expressive. Man, there's amens, people with their hands in the air. You could have a whole band. I mean, it's, it's different than anybody thinks of what church usually is. You might love it. In fact, if you come with me, I'll take you to lunch afterwards. And when you take them out to lunch, ask them what they thought. Who knows what God could do in that little time right there. Stop viewing your, your place of employment as a place of employment. Start viewing it as a place to reach people, as a mission field. Think to yourself, how can I take this conversation and how can, I, how can I direct it towards Christ? How can I be salty in my communication? Look at the book of Matthew to flavor your conversation with salt. Put a smile on your face. Be welcoming. You know, I've had some, <laughs> this is not funny, but it is. Uh, some people come up to me recently and say, David, is something wrong? And I, like, you know, I introduce my friends to you at church, and you say hi to all them, but you won't say hi to me. Or, you know, we're playing basketball, and, and it's like you didn't even say hi to me. You didn't even talk to me at all. Uh, and I've had this happen several times now, so I know it's an issue. <laughs> it's not good. But what I'm thinking is this. I go play basketball, and I see five guys that I've never seen before in my life. And I'm thinking to myself, I want to go to each every one of them. I want to give them a handshake. I want to look them in the eye. I want to know their name. I want to try to memorize their name. I want, I want them to know the next time they come, I remember, I remember them. I know who they are. And then they're, at some point, they're going to find out I'm a pastor. And they're going to say to themselves, that's a really cool pastor. Maybe this is a church that I could go to. And they might end up at church, and they might see Jesus Christ. And so when you introduce me to your friends, I'm all in. I'm at, how are you doing? Where are you from? Where did you grow up? All these things, I'm collecting data in my brain. It's the way my brain works. And sometimes in the process, I forget you. And the reason isn't because I hate you or there's some problem between us. The reason is because I want to reach people for Christ. But I still need to get better at remembering you guys too. So I'm working on that. I want winners. I want people that want to win. What does a healthy church look like? It's a church that reaches out to the lost. I want winners. 
I want people that want to win. Father, you gave us an unbelievable example in Paul. There wasn't a people group that he didn't strategize to reach. Whether he had to drop his freedoms or, or take on rules, I, he didn't care. If I can just reach him, I'll do anything. As long as it's not immoral, I will do it. I want to reach people. Motivated by the finish line, motivated by the goal to win, motivated by the crown that you'll give us one day. What an example. Father, would you make us a church in 2013, as we have been in the past, to welcome outsiders, to smile and say, you are welcome here. We love you, and we love you enough to tell you about the goodness of Jesus Christ on the cross for your sin and mine, if you would believe, and he'd change your life. We want to be a healthy church. Pray you produce that in our hearts. In Jesus' name. Amen.